listening to the History of the Modern Middle East, Episode 7, The Tripolitanian War. Alright, so after two episodes covering the history of Libya up to 1911, we're finally back to continue the narrative forward. Well, at least for an episode. As a quick refresher, when we last left the Ottomans, they were struggling to find some kind of political and constitutional balance between the chamber, the cabinet, and the army. The head of the Third Army, Mahmoud Sefket Pasha, serving as Minister of War, was refusing to allow the army to be subject to the inspections and oversights from Parliament. During a cabinet meeting in August of 1911, he threatened to resign as Minister of War, which could potentially cause the government of Grand Vizier Ibrahim Haki Pasha to collapse. It would collapse, but not because of Sefket Pasha. It would collapse after September 29th, when the Kingdom of Italy declared war on the Ottoman Empire. It was ultimately internal politics that drove Italy to declare war. Having come to the game of imperialism late, there were a few options open for it to obtain a colony. Libya was targeted firstly because the French took control of their preferred colony, Tunis. Libya, as explained in the previous episodes, was poor and not worth anything economically speaking. The only reason for taking it was to show that Italy could. The Italians were embarrassed at their failure to take Ethiopia back in 1896. So in the early years of the new century, they began to position themselves to take Libya by becoming economically vested in the region, despite the fact that the place was just a money sink. As the years went on, the Italians claimed that the Ottoman authorities were blocking Italians from purchasing land and investing. Throughout 1910 and into 1911, the Italians accused the Ottomans of discriminating and persecuting Italians living in Ottoman Libya. These accusations were echoed in Italian newspapers, but not non-Italian papers, including the New York Herald, which reported that the Ottomans were pretty equitable in their treatment of non-Ottomans living in Libya. Despite this, though, the Italian government and its allied media outlets continued this narrative of Italian persecution. Basically, the Italian government was trying to gaslight the Ottoman Empire. During the lead-up to the war, there were plenty of internal issues for the Ottomans to deal with, including a rebellion going on in Albania, to which the Ottomans attempted to placate by ending their policies of Turkification. They would also try to satisfy the Italians by replacing the governor of Tripoli, who was accused of over-scrutinizing land purchases, along with postponing the construction of a new port at Tripoli. As it turns out, both the Albanian rebellion and stories of discrimination in Libya were both connected to Italy. King Nicholas of Montenegro, which had been given independence at the Berlin Conference that ended the Russo-Turkish War in the 1870s, was inciting Catholic Albanians into rebellion. King Nicholas was the father-in-law of Italy's king, Victor Emmanuel III, and was frequently in contact with Italy and its king. Now, it is not believed that Italy was directly involved in inciting the Albanian revolt in 1911, but it is believed that he could have pressured King Nicholas into cutting it out. Sultan Mehmed V met with Italian diplomats in August of 1911, and in this meeting he consistently ensured them that the Ottoman Empire didn't want war with Italy and wanted to find a peaceful resolution. Unfortunately for the Empire, the Italians interpreted this as a sign of weakness, and felt that they could cajole the Sultan into their demands, which were becoming increasingly high. It's hard to pin down the exact moment Italy had decided that war was the only option. But by the end of August, they seemed determined to settle the Libya question by means of force. Italian newspapers began beating the war drums as it pushed public opinion towards that inevitability. One Italian paper, La Stampa, 
published an article that argued Italy's right to rule Tripoli through a series of convoluted claims dating back to the 16th century. The claim begins with the rule of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, aided by Sicilians, occupied Tripoli in 1510, who then later gifted Tripoli to the Knights of Malta, so long as they paid an annual tribute to the King of Sicily. The article argued that the Knights of Malta continued to pay the annual tribute even after the city was captured by the Ottomans, and that the currently ruling House of Savoy had inherited the Sicilian claim, and therefore Italy had a right to Tripoli. Of course, not many took this claim seriously, but it was just one of a number of nationalist elements pushing Italy towards war, along with callbacks to the Roman Empire, which had once controlled the shores of Libya. The warning signs were growing. Italian ambassadors were feeling out the potential reactions of foreign capitals, all the while Ottoman diplomats were trying through foreign capitals to induce the Italians into accepting a peaceful resolution. The Austrians and Russians both warned the Italians and the Turks of the potential repercussions of their conflict on the Balkans, which by this point were seen as the powder keg of Europe. Although most media voices in Italy were beating the drums for war, there were a few that tried to speak reason to madness. One warning came in late September, when a law professor published a series of articles laying out the potential calamities of war with the Ottomans, among them being the unwillingness of the Ottoman Empire, a Muslim caliphate, to willingly give up any bit of Dar al-Islam. And even if they managed to beat the Ottomans' standing army, they would still have to put down the local Arab tribes, whom not even the Ottomans had been able to tame after nearly four centuries. Despite these warnings, the preparations for war continued unabated. The Italian government knew that it needed to act before December, when the waters of the Mediterranean would be less conducive to an amphibious invasion. Due to the Ottomans losing most of their wars in recent years, the Italians thought that a war with them would be quick and decisive. Now, perhaps another country it would have been, but Italy was not the one to do that. The Italian government wanted preparations of war to be as secret as possible, but this resulted in their military not being prepared enough for the coming fight. They waited until after the army and the navy had held their annual training maneuvers in August and early September respectively. The reason this was a problem was because after the training maneuvers, many officers and sailors were either discharged or sent home on leave, and this was being done right before a planned war. On top of that, all the ships of the Italian Navy were sent back to their home ports where they didn't have any fuel in reserve. The Italians, it appeared, were about to blunder into another ill-fought war. On September 27th, the Italians delivered an ultimatum to the Ottomans, with a 24-hour deadline. The ultimatum demanded the transfer of Libya to the Italians and had what many interpreted as being an aggressive and hostile language. The Ottomans would reply within the deadline, and did so in a way that most observers saw as extremely reasonable. They gave in to most of the Italian demands, with the only exception being that the Ottomans wanted to retain nominal sovereignty in the provinces. A similar situation existed for Egypt, where the Sultan claimed suzerainty over the country, but in reality it was controlled by the British in, well, everything. However, the Italians were in no mood to negotiate on this point. They wanted Libya to be fully theirs in both reality and name, and wanted the Ottomans to acknowledge that Italy has bested them on this frontier. It was this issue that would drag the war on for so long once it got going. 
On September 29th, the Italians declared war and began their ill-planned venture against a country that most people and governments saw as being in the right on this one. The declaration of war was an embarrassment to Haki Pasha's government, which resulted in his resignation as Grand Vizier. Numerous veteran statesmen were asked to serve as Grand Vizier, but Mehmed V ultimately chose a former Grand Vizier who had served under his brother that opposed Abdul Hamid II. The man he chose was Mehmed Saeed Pasha, whom I'll be referring to as Saeed Pasha from here on out. Saeed Pasha had served as Grand Vizier seven times before, never serving more than three years at any one time. He's the guy you call in when nobody else will take the job, and he'll see you through whatever crisis you're in. It took Saeed Pasha several days to form a cabinet, but in doing so, he was leading the cabinet with the fewest number of CUP members since the revolution restored the constitution. It was the closest the Ottomans would come to a coalition government in the second constitutional period. The war put the CUP into a strange position. On the one hand, they couldn't condone the handing over of Libya to the Italians out of fear of angering the conservative Islamic elements within the country, who already saw them as being non- or anti-Muslim. And on the other hand, they couldn't make religious appeals for war out of fear of alienating the non-Muslims of the empire for whom they are trying to foster an Ottoman identity within. This resulted in much of the Ottoman strategy revolving around international appeals. Since Italy was an ally of Germany and Austria at this time, the conflict saw an initial surge in pro-British sentiments. The Ottoman foreign ministry tried to get the British to force the Italians into ending the war, and in exchange the Ottomans would agree to either sign a treaty of alliance with the British or with the Triple Entente as a whole. Despite the British being worried about the destabilizing effects the war between Italy and Turkey could have on the Mediterranean and the Balkans, they were not so concerned as to risk a continental war in Europe over it. The Ottomans also made overtures to Russia, who had counseled both countries to avoid conflict. However, the Russians were sympathetic to Italian interests, or more accurately, they were sympathetic to anyone who wanted to take a swipe at the Ottoman Empire. However, the Russians preferred a weak Ottoman Empire on its southern border, rather than a collection of squabbling Islamic powers, or even worse, a bunch of Western Europeans taking control of the Middle East. So the Russians were fine with the dismantling of the Ottoman Empire, but only at a piecemeal basis, and this seemed to be the position of much of Europe. But while the Ottomans were seeking diplomatic aid in ending the conflict, the Italians were engaging in more kinetic operations. Shortly after declaring war, Italy was militarily active in the Adriatic Sea, where they sunk two Ottoman torpedo boats near Previsa, as well as halting Greek ships for questioning. Both the Austrian and Greek governments protested these actions, and demanded that military actions be kept out of the Adriatic Sea, to which Italy acquiesced, because its ability to wage war against the Ottomans ultimately depended on the willingness of the powers of Europe. The Italians were hoping that they could get the Ottomans to concede the war before they clashed on land, but to no one's surprise, they didn't. Another reason for the attacks, though, may have had something to do with the three-way rivalry within the Italian government. The foreign ministry, the prime minister, and the navy all had competing interests, and the navy saw the need to redeem itself after their loss to the Austrian navy in the Austro-Prussian War just as the army needed to redeem itself after the debacle in Ethiopia. The navy was very capable of achieving easy victories because, as unprepared as the Italian military was for war, the Ottomans were still worse off. The fighting in North Africa would officially begin on October 3rd, when the Italian navy began bombarding the city of Tripoli, 
followed by the landing of 1,700 men on October 4th. By October 21st, the Italians had also seized the towns and ports of Tobruk, Derna, Benghazi, and Homs. The Italian army at this time was a hodgepodge of modern and antiquated elements, with many officer positions still being given to those of aristocratic backgrounds instead of being based on merit. On the other hand, the pay for your average soldier was much better than it had been in the past, but this also had the effect of luring less qualified men into the army. Northern Italy had industrialized and grew wealthy, while southern Italy remained largely agricultural. This divide resulted in northern Italians, who were usually better educated to seek jobs in the private sector, while the poor and less educated Italians in the south flocked to the military where the pay was better than they could get working in agriculture. This resulted in the Italian army possessing a lot of men who were there only for the pay, and in many circumstances didn't even feel like a professional standing army. Italy also had the problem of having no soldiers trained for fighting in the deserts of North Africa like the French or British would have. Now, the Ottomans weren't completely helpless in North Africa, but they didn't have the means to challenge Italy for every inch of territory on the coasts. The Ottoman forces in Africa were under the command of Neset Bey, who was such an obscure commander that there isn't even a Wikipedia page for him. The Ottoman regulars in Libya would be supplemented by Bedouin volunteers. The Ottoman strategy in Libya was to withdraw from the coastal cities and ports, and to go into the hinterland where they would wage a guerrilla war against the Italians who could take control of those ports, but nothing else. Because the Italians dominated the seas, the Ottomans couldn't ship reinforcements to their forces in Libya. This resulted in them going through foreign occupied territory, namely Egypt and Tunisia. Numerous Ottoman officers, including at this point the unknown Mustafa Kemal, to travel in disguise to Egypt on Russian ships, disguised as journalists and businessmen, and then make their way into Libya, where they would organize the local Arab populace into militias to resist the Italians. Because the Ottomans were limited in conventional means of attacking Italy, they decided to engage in some asymmetrical warfare. The CUP encouraged patriotic Ottomans to boycott Italian goods in order to deprive them of trade. This wasn't the first time this tactic was used, it having been used against the Austrians back in 1908 when they annexed Bosnia. It managed to get the Ottomans a concession of allowing Muslims in Bosnia to recognize the Sultan as religious authority over them in his role as Caliph. The Ottomans were, of course, hoping that it would do more than that this time around. On October 7th, the Ottoman Ministry of Justice declared that Italy would lose its capitulation privileges. This means that Italy no longer got to run its own courts for crimes involving its citizens in the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans would also attempt some backdoor diplomacy by offering terms to the Italian government through a different intermediary. The Italian delegate to the Ottoman Public Debt Commission, Alberto Theodoli. Theodoli was a prominent figure in Constantinople, and he was approached by Deputy Carasso, a Jew from Thessalonica in the Ottoman Parliament. Carasso got Theodoli a meeting with Said and Sefket Pasha, where they offered him the terms on which the Ottomans were willing to make peace with Italy. 1. Italian occupation and administration of Libya with nominal sovereignty for the Sultan. 2. Italian payments to the Ottoman government for the territory. In this circumstance, the Ottomans would probably recognize these payments as rent or tribute, while the Italians would recognize it more like a house payment. And 3. A treaty of friendship between the two countries. Theodoli would deliver this message to the Italian foreign minister around October 6th or 7th but he refused to accept it, 
and proceeded to promise the Ottomans that they would break the empire's resistance militarily. During this crisis, the CUP were internally weak. People on the outside thought and portrayed the cabinet of Said Pasha as a CUP government, despite the fact that it was the least CUP government formed since the revolution. The leaders of the CUP feared the damage this public perception could have had on their political prospects. If things were going badly, and people believed that the CUP was in control of everything, then the blame for everything was going to fall on the CUP. So the high-ranking members of the CUP within the cabinet, such as Mehmed Talat, Kavit Bey, and Nazim Soloniki, wanted to form a truly coalition government for the duration of the war in order to disperse the blame for things going wrong. They approached Prince Sabahadeen to become part of the government. And for those who don't quite remember, Sabahadeen was one of the leaders from the first Young Turks Congress in Paris who wanted to get the international community involved in overthrowing the Sultan of Abdulhamid II. Well, the prince was not interested in sharing the blame for the CUP's blunders, and so refused to join. The CUP was losing support in portions of western Anatolia, and the opposition wanting to bide their time until they could completely oust the committee and form a government completely of their own. Despite this though, when Parliament met again in mid-October, they gave a vote of confidence to Said Pasha, thereby allowing his government to continue operating. The foreign capitals of Europe had a hard time interpreting the inner machinations of Ottoman politics, but they all seemed to fear the young Turks, seeing them as the least likely element within Turkish government to give in to Western demands. This made them fear that the war would be long and drawn out. By November, both sides of the conflict had made their positions quite clear of what they wanted out of it. And because they couldn't agree on the point of sovereignty over Libya, the war would continue, and unfortunately for both sides, the fighting on the ground would stalemate. The Italians were incapable of pushing much further outside the immediate area outside of the coastal cities. This meant that if Italy wanted to put more pressure on the Ottomans, they would have to expand the war outside Libya, but this threatened reprisals from the rest of Europe. A conversation between King Victor Emmanuel III and his Prime Minister on October 25th saw the King advise the government to start making preparations for a potential expansion of the war into the Aegean, and to do so well in advance of actually carrying it out. The king was clearly aware of how bungled the preparations for the invasion of Libya were, so he wanted to circumvent that problem before it happened. The prime minister ensured the king that they would win the war in Libya before expanding it was necessary. How much he actually believed this is uncertain, because he shortly thereafter ordered the military to begin drawing up plans for an expansion of the war. Now, this could mean that he knew that the Italian military wouldn't be able to beat the Ottomans in Libya, or it could just mean that he was taking precautionary measures to compensate for the fog of war. As more voices in Italy began to call out for expansion of the war outside of Libya, the Ottomans grew nervous, because Libya wasn't the only place in the empire that they couldn't easily defend. Up to this point in the war, the Ottoman government had left the Italian colonies and the empire alone, despite the fact that they had served as a potential problem. The Ottoman foreign ministry began to order their diplomats in foreign capitals to warn their host countries that if the Italians expanded the war outside Libya, then they would be forced to deport Italian citizens out of the country, which was a common and accepted practice during times of war during the early 20th century. The leaders and foreign ministers of these countries acknowledged that this was well within the empire's rights according to the Geneva and Hague conventions of the time, but tried to discourage this action. But considering how limited the Ottomans were in their options, the fact that they didn't do this from the start shows remarkable restraint on their part. 
especially after Italian treatment of Muslims in Libya under their occupation. On October 23rd, an Italian trench line outside Tripoli was attacked by a force of about 10,000 Ottoman regulars and Arab volunteers. The Italians managed to beat them back, but the damage to their regiment was so severe that it ceased to have the numbers to be a functioning one. There are allegations that the Ottomans and Arabs captured 250 Italian soldiers, executed them, nailed their corpses to trees, and mutilated their genitals. This was supposedly done in retaliation to the rape of some Muslim women by Italian soldiers in Tripoli. What made the situation more dangerous for the Italians was that at the same time the attack outside Tripoli was happening, an uprising occurred within the city. The Italians responded to this by allowing an indiscriminate massacre to occur, going as far as to drop bombs on civilians in the city from aircrafts, which had been outlawed by The Hague in 1907. Foreign journalists in the city reported that Italian soldiers had killed all the inhabitants of an entire quarter of the city, including women and children. The Italian military tried to keep the story from getting out, but there were too many journalists to keep an eye on. This massacre resulted in the British government taking an anti-Italian stance within the conflict and an aborted Anglo-Italian agreement in the Mediterranean that was in the works. While this massacre was going on, the Italians were engaging in some backdoor diplomacy of their own. Their diplomat in Constantinople met with members of the CUP and attempted to persuade or even bribe them into pushing the CUP into opposing the war. The Italian ambassador had a list of names to bribe for this purpose and would continue to attempt until peace negotiations finally began nearly a year later when they found out that none of the CUP members had ever accepted the bribes. Since their own less conventional means of fighting were not effective, they tried something a little more presumptive. By royal decree, Italy announced their formal annexation of Libya on November 5, 1911. It was received well in Italy, but most foreign observers thought it was a bit foolish, especially considering Italy barely controlled anything past the coastlines of Libya. The reason Italy declared its annexation of Libya was to avoid international intervention. The Italian government believed that if they took official ownership of Libya, the other great powers would be less likely to try and end the war on pro-Ottoman terms. All the other great powers were in communication with each other on what to do about the ongoing conflict, and none of them knew for certain what Italy would try next. What Italy would do next, though, is expand the war. Just not in the way anyone was expecting. In November of 1911, the Italians began engaging in naval operations in the Red Sea, which was of great concern to the Ottomans, who did everything they could to make it a big concern to the other great powers. In the midst of their operations in the Red Sea, the Italians interrupted the flow of trade and persons to the port of Jeddah, which was the primary access point for Muslims to arrive in Mecca in order to participate in the Hajj. They also shelled the port city of Aqaba, which is the only port in modern-day Jordan. The Ottoman foreign minister implored the great powers of Europe to force Italy to stop its Red Sea operations out of fear of inciting the entirety of the Muslim world against Italy and the West. This message was given a particular emphasis in communiques with Russia, France, and Britain, who all had substantial Muslim populations within their empires. France and Britain took these warnings quite seriously, but Russia, for some inexplicable reason, wasn't. Despite the fact that the geographic center of its empire was majority Islamic. The only time they reacted to Italian naval moves was when they threatened to blockade the Dardanelles, which was a big no-no for the Russians. 
These disasters resulted in internal political changes within the Ottoman Empire. On November 21st, a number of smaller factions in the Ottoman Parliament merged together to form the Liberal Union Party, normally referred to as Liberal Unionists, in contrast with the CUP, who were frequently referred to as the Unionists. The party was formed and led by a number of former army officers who had only one thing in common, opposition to the CUP. Within the party, you had traditional classical liberals, along with conservative theocrats and old-fashioned absolutists. All of these ideologies and groups opposed the program of reforms of the CUP. The liberal unionists also worked with Greeks, Bulgarians, Armenians, and Arabs in their opposition to the uniformly Turkish CUP. The leaders timed their announcement of the new political formation to coincide with a meeting between King Edward VII of the British Empire and Foreign Minister Kamil Pasha in order to exploit the presence of foreign media, which made internal Ottoman politics inextricably linked with international relations. The Liberal Unionists would see some early successes in December, when they won a special election to fill an empty seat in the Chamber of Deputies that was usually filled by a CUP member. The CUP were afraid of what might happen if the Liberal Unionists could actually take Parliament through a series of special elections and defections. So, the CUP wanted to force an election in Parliament. Although the Liberal Unionists were gaining power at the national level, they were not as well organized at the local level as the CUP were. So they were confident that if a new election was held, they could comfortably win. The way they tried to force an election was to expand the powers of the Sultan. After the counter-revolution of 1909, the CUP got the constitution amended to take away most of the Sultan's powers, including that of calling an election at his will. What the CUP wanted to do was to get a bill amending that and a few other powers back to the Sultan within the Constitution. This was a seemingly brilliant move on their part, because one of the demands of the Liberal Unionists was to restore some of the powers to the Sultan, including the ones proposed in the amendment. So what would happen is either the Liberal Unionists allow the amendment to go through, in which case they can get the Sultan to call a new election, or if the Liberal Unionists refuse, it can count as a vote of no confidence for the Grand Vizier, in which case a new election could be forced to occur. What happened was the Chamber of Deputies refused to vote for the amendment, which resulted in Saeed Pasha resigning the viziership on December 31st, just to be appointed Grand Vizier again the next day. He formed a new government and pursued the new amendment again, which was defeated again on January 13th, 1912. Due to this political failure, the Sultan was allowed to dissolve the chamber and call for a new election. The election of February 1912 in Ottoman history is referred to as the Big Stick election, due to the use of violence in some areas of the empire to intimidate voters. However, it was more than just blatant violence used in the election. The government also passed laws restricting the press and public meetings, which made it hard for liberal unionists who didn't have the ground-level political infrastructure to compete with the CUP. Unsurprisingly, the CUP won the election by a landslide, but they weren't able to go into the new parliamentary session until mid-May, and by then, the situation on the ground had changed for the war. The Italians continued their operations in the Red Sea through December and upped their game in January of 1912 by aiding a rebellion in Western Arabia, the Emirate of Asir, led by Sheikh Mohammed al-Idrisi. France and Britain had tried to get Italy to stop these operations, but it was proving effective at pressuring the Ottoman Empire while not disturbing the Balkans, 
which was the greater concern for both Russia and Austria. Despite technically winning the war on the ground, however, Italy was in dire financial straits due to the necessary expenditures of war. Italy was already one of the economically weakest countries in Europe. But now you have them spending even more than they can afford, and on top of that they are spending that money to procure territory that will never be financially beneficial. At least not during the time the Italians would possess it. War Minister Sefget Pasha was vexed by the Italian meddling in the Arabian Peninsula, but not enough to distract him from putting down the revolts in Albania, which was of far greater concern to him, due to its proximity to his power base in Thessalonica. But in February, the Italians expanded the war again, this time to the eastern shore of the Mediterranean, where they decided to bombard the city of Beirut. The Ottomans had thought that Syria and Lebanon would have been saved due to the French having a substantial presence in both areas, especially Lebanon, which has been a French protectorate since the reign of Napoleon III. However, the French didn't respond to the attack, most likely believing that Beirut was not worth starting a general European war over. And with this, the Italians discovered that they could hit the Ottomans a little closer to home without international reprisal. However, the Ottomans did respond to the attack by doing a partial deportation of Italian citizens, but at this point they only deported Italians living in the Levant, with an exception for religious personnel at churches and monasteries. There were internal pressures within Italy to expand the war even further, especially coming from the navy. At this point in the war, the navy was mostly used to escort ships transporting troops across the Mediterranean, but they wanted to take the fight to what was left of the Ottoman navy hiding in the Dardanelles. As spring came, they would get their chance as the Italians prepared to bring the war into the Aegean. On April 18th, a squad of 12 Italian warships attacked the Dardanelles. However, they didn't end up hitting the Ottoman navy, but rather the fortifications at the mouth of the Dardanelles. The Italian navy withdrew from further attacks on the Dardanelles, and in response the Ottomans shut down the straits, which upset the Russians, who needed them open in order to trade with the wider world. The Italians continued their move into the Aegean starting on April 23rd, when they occupied the island of Ostapalia, and was followed up by the occupation of the rest of the Dodecanese archipelago by the end of May. The Italian government was planning on expanding the war again into the northern Aegean, but the rest of the great powers protested more strongly to these attacks than the prior ones. This not only threatened the balance of power in the Mediterranean, it also destabilized the Balkans by showing them that the Ottomans were weak enough to attack them that close to home without impunity. In response to the attack, the Ottomans deported all remaining Italian citizens within the empire, which resulted in a lot of refugees arriving in Italy with nowhere to go. So the Italians would end up not expanding the war further north for fear of international consequences. By the time the Dodecanese Islands were occupied, the new CUP-controlled government of the Ottoman Empire was in position. And from the time of the revolution four years earlier, they had made a 180-degree flip. In 1908, the CUP wanted a legislative revolution that would reform the empire from within. But now, they wanted to strip the legislature of most of its powers and return them to the Sultan and the Cabinet because the Chamber of Deputies never acted as it wanted. And the timing was pretty good. With the Italians expanding the war in every which way, people felt as though the country needed a single authority with the power to react quickly to threats from foreign powers. And so on June 22nd, the Parliament voted to amend the Constitution, restoring to the Sultan some of his powers from before the counter-revolution. However, despite the acquiescent mood in Parliament to the actions of the CUP, 
Outside Parliament, it was rather different. The misuse and abuse of the laws ended up discrediting constitutionalism and its proponents in the eyes of the public and officers in the military. The CUP shifting from pro-parliamentary power to pro-executive power made them look more like cynical pragmatists rather than people driven by ideology or principles. In Constantinople, an association of officers formed a group known as the Savior Officers. This group had ties to both the Third Army in Macedonia and the Liberal Unionists. And in July of 1912, they would orchestrate their own seizure of power. They began making noise about getting the CUP out of the government, and getting the military out of politics. And they began threatening to do so by force, if the government didn't do so by legislation. War Minister Sefket Pasha attempted to get legislation passed that would forbid officers from participating in politics, with heavy penalties for those who broke that rule. He was doing this all the while saying that this is what he had wanted all along, and that he regretted allowing this to happen at all. And just as an aside, I've got to say that both Sefket Pasha and the Savior officers are full of crap on this issue. Sefket Pasha did say over and over again after the revolution that the army should stay out of politics, all the while manipulating politics and refusing to have the army be subject to the rule of law from parliament. The Savior officers are equally full of it because they are now themselves getting involved in politics. Basically, there's nothing but hypocrisy in the Young Turks era of Ottoman politics. Anyways, Sefket Pasha is making all of these changes in hopes of appeasing the Savior officers. But it was too little too late. The CUP had been in talks with other potential candidates for the position of war minister in hopes of saving their government. But on July 9th, Sefket Pasha resigned. However, he resigned without anyone willing to take up the position in place to succeed him, which sent the government into chaos. On July 15th, the Savior officers published a manifesto through the press, and made declaration through the army council to the Sultan. On July 17th, Said Pasha resigned, despite only two days earlier receiving a vote of confidence from the Chamber of Deputies. When the Sultan asked him why he was resigning despite having the confidence of Parliament, he said, They have confidence in me, but I have no confidence in them. On July 21st, the Sultan appointed Field Marshal Ghazi Ahmed Mutar Pasha, who I'm going to call Ahmed Mutar Pasha, as Grand Vizier. And he put together what has been referred to as either the Great Cabinet or the Father-Son Cabinet. The former of these two names was in reference to the three former Grand Viziers who served as ministers, and the latter because he appointed his son, Mahmud Mutar Pasha, as Minister of the Navy. When he put together this cabinet, Ahmed Mutar Pasha said he was trying to assemble a group of men not subject to outside political influence. But in reality, the unifying force of his cabinet was the desire to destroy the Committee of Union and Progress. Starting on July 23rd, the cabinet went about the business of expunging any and every element from the government that was a member of or loyal to the CUP. The Chamber of Deputies was still controlled by the CUP and tried to fight back using that position. However, they had recently fought to give the Sultan and cabinet more powers to act without Parliament which was about to backfire on them. The cabinet invoked the Sultan's power to dissolve Parliament and did so on August 4th, followed by a proclamation of martial law on August 8th in order to prevent the CUP from organizing a resistance or enlisting the army in Macedonia. The government would spend the next couple of months playing out a game of whack-a-mole with different CUP publications until they finally gave up in November. With the CUP out of the picture for the time being, 
the new Ottoman government can finally end the war with Italy. Peace talks between two powers had begun in June of 1912 before the Savior Officers' coup in July. Both Italy and the Ottoman Empire wanted to end the war before the international community got involved. And they both wanted this for the same reason. They were both afraid of the international community forcing a peace that favored the other side. Since neither of them wanted this, they decided to push for the end themselves. The talks initially began in the town of Lausanne in Switzerland. The Italians had a list of things they wanted, and a list of things they were willing to give up. But the Ottoman representatives didn't. This lack of instructions became worse when the coup happened and put the Ottoman government into a state of chaos from which no instructions could be given. But order was eventually restored to the Ottoman government, and from that point, instructions could be given to the negotiators at Lausanne. The final terms of the treaty called for the Ottomans to withdraw all military personnel from Libya, while Italy returned the Dodecanese to the Ottomans. The Sultan would be given special recognition within the Muslim communities of Libya, and would be acknowledged in his religious capacity as caliph, and would be allowed to appoint the Islamic religious functionaries in Libya upon consultation with the Italians. The treaty didn't explicitly say that the Sultan gave up his sovereignty over Libya, which left the status legally confusing after the war, even if not politically confusing. However, the Italians would not uphold all their parts of the treaty, because they refused to vacate the Dodecanese Islands. Italy would continue to occupy these islands through the Second World War, but we'll get to that in a later episode. The Treaty of Lausanne would be signed on October 18, 1912. What should be said is that although the treaty signed at this time was the Treaty of Lausanne, it is regularly called the Treaty of Auchi instead, named for a town nearby Lausanne in Switzerland. The reason for this is because in 1923, another treaty dealing with territorial dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire would also be signed in Lusain. However, all the while this war was going on, the Balkans were gearing up for a fight of their own. And if the ending of the war felt a little rushed in this rendition, that's because it was. Everyone knew that the Balkan states were gearing up for war. And it was only a question of when, not if. Ten days before the Treaty of Auchi was signed, the Kingdom of Bulgaria, Serbia, Greece, and Montenegro all declared war on the Ottoman Empire, in hopes of taking what was left of the Sultanate in the Balkans, thus beginning the Balkan Wars. And that's where I'm ending the episode today. If you're interested in the sources used for this episode, you can check out the show notes for it on historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com. If you're of the mind to, then I would greatly appreciate you guys giving the show a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps the show get more attention, which will allow me to justify putting more time into making it. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can reach me at historyofthemodernmiddleeast at gmail.com or on Twitter, either at HMME underscore podcast or my personal Twitter at Grant G. Hurst. Thanks for listening.